to celebrate our 100th episode, uh, we are putting a compilation of the best of why do you do this work answers. It'll be fascinating to rehear those. Obviously, we we ask those questions, but a compilation would be really interesting. It'll be uh, it'll be cool to hear them back to back. And I should also say, wow, thank you so much to everyone who listens uh, and for having stuck with us for a hundred episodes. Uh, or you know, clearly some of you have not been with us for a hundred episodes. <laughs> you should go back to the beginning and. Uh, listen to them. But yeah. anyway, it's been a fun ride and hopefully uh, we'll do another 100 episodes. And, and while you're there, you can leave us a review and a five-star rating because that's how oh, we get more listeners and we'll have <laughs> another 100 episodes. So Nick, you're a, a really rich guy with uh, who likes to have fun. I, I got to ask you about this podcast. Why do you do this work? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I don't do it for the money. Uh, that's for sure. As you know, Goldie, I just think it's so important to get the word out about what's really going on in the economy. Economists love to believe that mostly economics is like a science, and I just completely disagree. Mostly economics is a story about who gets what and why. And uh, I think it's really, really, uh, I, I think I think a lot of the social pathologies we face today are a consequence of a set of really terrible stories that economists told and and the people who benefited from those stories retold. And uh, if we don't tell a new story, we're not going to have a better economy. So I think that there's a really important role for people who are both uh, sort of in and outside the economics profession uh, to push back on those bad stories and to point towards new ones that are better. And I think we can do that. And also, I'm just continually mesmerized by the answers I get about what's wrong with the world from people who are my peers. It is so striking to me that a group of people who have so benefited from a particular set of economic and political arrangements and who sit at the very top of this giant sort of social and economic pyramid, when they look around at the challenges the world face, almost never include themselves as part of the problem. It's just absolutely shocking that you could benefit so much from a set of arrangements and never think to yourself once, maybe it's possible the reason things are screwed up is because of the arrangements that benefit me so much. And I, I just think that that lack of self-awareness or, or just sort of psychological ability to see yourself in some of the problems that surround you and the world, I'm just, I'm always shocked by it. And I think that the podcast is a really great way to push back on that lack of self-awareness that I see is so prevalent in my social circle in my and in my world. I'm Ro Khanna. I uh, represent the district in Silicon Valley in the United States Congress, and I'm a vice chair of the Progressive Caucus in Congress. Why do you do this work? 
Well, for two reasons. I uh, am the son of immigrants. My parents came from India. My uh, father was a chemical engineer. My mom was a substitute school teacher. I went to public school, uh, took out loans to get to go to some of the great universities. And I now represent arguably one of the most economically successful places in the world. Uh, I believe it's an extraordinary country. I believe there's, it's a kind country, a decent country. I grew up in a place that was 99% white. I was one of the only Indian kids going to school in a class of 800. And so I, I fundamentally believe in the decency of this country. But I, I, I think that the country is being ripped apart by people who aren't talking about the real issues, which is that we're going through a technology revolution and there have been people left behind. And I fundamentally have a hope that if we can extend economic opportunity to people left out, then uh, we will appeal to the better angels of this country again and, and the type of country uh, that I grew up in, which was very uh, inclusive and, and wanted people to, to achieve their dreams. And then on a very personal level, my grandfather spent four years in jail with Gandhi in the 1940s. Really? Uh, in India's independence. And no so kidding. I, uh, you know, I've been very, very passionate about human rights from a very young age. My name is Kate Blackford, and I am the Director of Outreach for the Bell Policy Center. One thing that we ask all of our guests is, why do you do this work? What drives you? Do you know the Paul Wellstone quote, we all do better when we all do better? Mm -hmm. So right now, our economy feels rigged. And how hard it is to lead even a middle-class life is so real. But I don't believe it has to be that way, and I want to be part of that change. I'm Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation. Tell us a little bit about your personal story and how that relates to why you do this work now. Well, my story is a story of certainly overcoming difficulty, so challenge of poverty and race, growing up in small Texas town, being born in a very poor community in rural Louisiana. There's no doubt that I experienced hardship. But what I will also say is that I experienced enormous generosity. And I lived at a time when little boys like me felt that our country was cheering us on, that time in America when the country clearly declared that it was committed to ending poverty, to addressing some of these root causes, to making it possible for kids like me to believe. And I always knew that my country was cheering me on. And today, I wonder if poor boys and girls and rural towns like Ames, Texas, or in housing projects in East New York believe that their country is cheering them on. I had a private philanthropy. I had Pell Grants. I had all sorts of public goods, public education, good public library that were, was all made uh, possible for me. And I just today am concerned that we don't seem to be giving that message to uh, young people who are increasingly marginalized and uh, incarcerated and ensnared in systems and structures that doom them to failure. 
I'm Nancy McLean. I teach uh, history and public policy at Duke University, and I am the author most recently of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Self-Plan for America. So, so we have one final question for you. Okay. Why do you do the work you do? Uh, I love that. Um, I guess my my first answer is because I can't imagine doing anything else. You know, just being who I am and knowing what I know and feeling as strongly as I do about these things. Um, but I will also say, uh, and this might be for listeners who have not gotten involved in things yet, but who are disturbed by what they see happening in the country and the world, people forget to mention this often, I think, but being civically active is incredibly rewarding. You know, you meet other people who share your values, who share your commitments. There's a kind of a spree de corps to it, a fun, a camaraderie, and it is the best, you know, not antidepressant yeah. <laughs> that doesn't come over the counter in a jar um, to be with people who are good people who are trying to make the world better. And, you know, again, who share some of your ideas and values, but they always stretch you and challenge you. And, and there's a lot of um, joy actually along the way uh, in that, that camaraderie. So I'd say that's what keeps me going. My name is Cesar Hidalgo. I'm a founder of DataWheel, and I'm also a professor at the University of Toulouse, Manchester, and Harvard. Why do I do this work? To be honest, you know, because it helps me learn. And the only way to learn, you know, is to jump into the deep end of the pool and, and start swinging your arms and legs and see if you float. <laughs> I am Mess Brodron. I work at UC Irvine School of Law. I do this work because I think the stories and the myths that we tell about the economy, about you know, simple things like banks, credit, the bootstrapism, end up affecting people's lives. And I think there's a lot of shame and just emotions wrapped up in money and class. And I, I, I you know, I've lived poor. I've lived middle class, um, and I, I know. Uh, that when you're poor, you don't want to talk about this stuff. You know, and so I, I am taking the privilege that I have now as a no longer poor person to try to to demystify and to to take the shame out of um, some of these these effects because I think most poor people are actually doing making the best decisions that they that they can, and I think the wealthy don't understand that. So my name is Anu Partanen. I'm a writer and I'm the author of the Nordic Theory of Everything in Search of a Better Life. And I'm Trevor Corson. I'm married to Anu Partanen, the most important thing you need to know about me. And I am also an author. I have most recently been teaching American studies and writing at Columbia University in New York City, uh, where we lived for 10 years before we moved to Finland. Why do you do the work you do? Well, I feel like um, as a writer, I want to try to find something that I can give to the world that I can provide. And for me right now, or for the past several years, the fact that I had lived in the United States for 10 years, I'm now also American citizen, and that I come from a Nordic country is something unique that I have. So that's why I had chosen to put my efforts into writing and discussing and thinking about those differences. I guess I feel as an American, as, a, as, as someone who grew up in the US and has family and friends there, I'm just really worried about where we are headed i think we are we are possibly headed for like very bad civil strife possibly 
And what frustrates me about the conversation and a lot of the people I'm in touch with back in the U.S. is how it's so hard for us in the U.S. to conceive of this kind of very sensible middle ground that we're living as a reality here in Finland. Whereas in the U.S., we're stuck with these narratives about freedom or, you know, communism, basically. And the reality is everybody thinks that the, that the mainstream in the U.S. is, you know, has to be centrist and is centrist. And that's the only really viable area. And having known Anu and I like, I think I, I feel like I need to read her book at least once a year to keep like reminding myself of all the amazing insights in it about the U S but the idea that we're centrist is nuts. We're far to the right. Every, we've all become completely convinced that, you know, anything that's good for anybody and that can help save our capitalist system in the United States is some form of communism, communism or something is just ludicrous. And I feel so frustrated that I want to help try to do what little I can, you know, from the, our perch here in Finland right now to say, hey, everybody, wake up. You know, uh, our American U.S. system is really in danger and it's and we need new stories about how to understand who we are. Hi, I'm Abigail Disney. I'm a filmmaker, an activist, and a philanthropist. You know, we have a question that we always ask every guest uh, at the end of these interviews, and uh, we're curious, why do you do this work? You know, from the time I was very small, none of this fit naturally with me in my heart. I just always felt like I had to offer what I had to everyone around me. It's just like a, it's a compulsion almost. And so I don't, I can't even imagine doing anything else. It's just what I have to do. Well, I'm Professor Steve Keen. I've been a, a critic of mainstream economics my entire academic and pre-academic career. I wrote the book called Debunking Economics. And what I've been trying to do is build a realistic economics, not caught up with what I call the, the neoclassical disease. Uh, another question we, all, we ask of all our guests why do you do this work? <laughs> um, because I believe in reality. And we, we have to, uh, we, one thing humans have added to the planet that other species haven't done is accumulating knowledge over time. And I'm enraged to see something pretending to be knowledge, which is actually myth. And that's neoclassical economics. And fact, you know, those are extreme marks in economics too. So I, I want to get a realistic approach to economics first and foremost. And I just realized that we've got people stuck in groupthink and both the extreme left with the Marxist world and the extreme right with the neoclassicals that are giving us fantasies rather than understanding of reality. So I want us to understand the world we live in and I want us to preserve it as well. My name is Nina Turner. I am a former Ohio state senator. Uh, representing the Cuyahoga County and Lake County areas. And I am a national co-chair for Senator Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. Why do you do this work? Why are you involved? Oh, my God. I mean, it's a mission. Oh, my God. I, I feel compelled. I, it's a ministry. You know, I've always had this ministry of service, so whether it was in my capacity as a, as a, as a big sister you know, you're, you're giving me the opportunity to really share with people who are, you know, engaged in this dialogue with us. Is uh, my mother died at a very young age. She died when she was 42 years old. Oh, wow. 
I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, my God. Me too. I'm about to tear up just thinking about it. I mm-hmm. miss her so very much. But, you know, she was, you know, really young, 42 years old, aneurysm burst in her brain. And I'm the oldest of seven children. And, you know, my baby sister was 12 when my mom died. All of us are two years apart. And, you know, that was really a defining moment for me. And I, I'd always been pushed by, you know, my grandmother to, to be the best and to be of service. And, to have my mom die so young just really cemented something to me that I wanted to make her proud, even in death. And every day, you know, every move that I make from being an elected official, whatever level, whether it was local level or state level or government, being a college professor, being a wife, a mom, you know, I've always tried to have as my guiding principle, my guiding force, those words that my grandmother spoke to me, which was to be the best and to be of service. So this is a ministry for me, and it is informed by my lived experience. And, you know, my mother, who was underinsured, who was among the working poor, who had a job and didn't have a job, had a job, didn't have a job, had a job, didn't have a job, and the stressors of being a custodial parent to seven children, you know, and, and then on top of being a black woman in America, that's a lot. And, you know, I believe that stress just stress killed my mom, but it is because of her memory and because of all that my grandmother, her mother instilled in me that when to whom much is given, much is required. Everything that I do, I do it as if it is a ministry. And I consider myself very much a hell-raising humanitarian. <laughs> I don't go along to get along, you know. I will stand up and I take the hard hits and I have taken hard hits and I continue to take hard hits, but I'm doing what I believe is right, what is just and what is good. And in that way, I'm just so inspired because I, you know, I come from a working class family. I know what it means to be really, 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 really poor, you know, not to have food, you know, have my mother cry herself to sleep at night because she couldn't afford to uh, buy seven kids Christmas gifts, you know, feeling like a failure, a mom who at times wanted to commit suicide. So I get it. And I'm just so committed to pushing very hard to decrease the number of people who feel like my mom. And because I have been blessed to be a cycle breaker from, you know, being a first generation college graduate to being elected to high offices, to running for statewide office, to serving as a national affairs here for Senator Bernie Sanders in 20. 16 and now to be a national co-chair for him in 2020 I have been given much even though I had to come up the rough side of the mountain and so it is my moral obligation to use my voice and to give back and to speak and amplify the voices of people who do not have who struggle and try every single day so it is the hell hell raising humanitarian in me Stephanie that keeps me going every single day So I am Luigi Zingales. I am a professor of finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I'm a director of a center called uh, Stiegler Center, whose goal is to study how vested interests are subverting the competitive market economy. Why do you do this work? Because I love it. What do you love about it? Honestly, I think that the study of economics is a study of how to improve people's lives, uh, at least from an economic point of view. Of course, there are 
many dimensions of people's lives. But I think that this is one and is very important. And uh, being able to study how to, to do it is extremely rewarding. Uh, my name is Preeti Krishchal. I'm the co-founder and co-executive director of an organization called IMAC, the Initiative for Medicines Access and Knowledge. I do this work because I think that our children and grandchildren are going to feel the effects of the choices we make right now. Every time we go to the pharmacy, we're feeling the effects of the system. It is only going to grow by the time my son is grown up. And so uh, that's why I do this work. I'm Paul Krugman, a professor of economics at the Graduate Center of the City of New York, columnist for the New York Times, and uh, author of Arguing with Zombies. Uh, so we have one final question for you, and that is, why do you do the work that you do? I think basically in the hope that it, I can make a little bit of a difference. You know, I have grandiose visions. One of the things that, uh, kind of an interesting thing, if you you know, I've, I, I somehow or other ended up with the the best journalistic spot in the world, the uh, op-ed page of the New York Times, and uh, and my ability to move public opinion is still almost I invisible. You can uh, you can at best nudge things a little bit. Uh, so, but it can make some difference. I I think I played some role in us not privatizing Social Security, which is the first thing I talk about in arguing with zombies. I think I played some role in us getting even an incomplete uh, health care reform. Uh, I argued against destructive austerity policies, and unfortunately, I think we kind of lost that argument, but it was the right argument to make. So if you can make a little bit of a difference, especially in something, you know, this economics is about society, and if you can make society even infinitesimally better than, than you've justified your existence. My name is Katrine Marsal. I'm a journalist and author, and I'm the author of Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which is a book on women and economics, and it has been translated into 20 languages. So we ask every one of our guests at the end of our interviews, why do you do this work? Well, that's a good question. I should have prepared that. Um, I do this work. I, I, I just, I, I, I don't know. I can't stop. I just, I just find it so, so fascinating. Really, I mean, it's, it's a self, maybe selfish. I, I, I want to know. I want to understand these things. Um, I want to understand why you know the world is the way it is, and, and I think, especially with with these economic theories. I think I do write this in, in the book in Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner that, you know, if, if you're sort of happy with the world and the way it is and you think that, you know, you look around and you see the inequality and you see the poverty and you think, well, this is actually, this is rather good, then you can kind of afford to sort of invest in this sort of model of, of economics, of rational uh, choice and self-interest that doesn't have much to do with reality and with, you know, how, how human beings really work. But if you do actually want to change things, if you do think something else is possible and should be possible, then then you need to try to understand how the economy really works. And I think that's what, what drives me. I, I want to know, I want to understand, and I, I want to do my, my bit there. And I love writing. I do. I do love to write. 
I'm Gabriel Zuckman. I'm a professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley, and I'm the co-author of The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. Why do you do what you do? I do this because I think inequality is indeed the defining challenge of our time. And I look at history and I see that there are lots of policies that, that affect inequality, of course, you know, antitrust, financial regulation, uh, access to higher education, all of that matters a lot. But taxation and progressive taxation in particular probably is the most important one in the sense that historically the big changes in income and wealth concentration have been linked to changes uh, in, in progressive taxation. And so if, if we care about inequality, if we take seriously this idea that it's one of the defining challenges of our time, then naturally, you know, you need to think about uh, how to make progressive taxation work in the 21st century. My name is Lisa D. Cook. I am an associate professor of economics and international relations at Michigan State University. I'm doing this work because I have always done this work. I desegregated something every single year I was growing up. It was the pool. Wow. It was the school. It was the hospital. It was the restaurants. And, you know, I grew up in the rural South. So this happened a lot later than it did in the rest of the country, or it is happening a lot later than mm -hmm. it has in the rest of the country. And I think that this is something that I was prepared to do, that I was trained to do, in, in, trained in, in uh, nonviolent change. So I don't think that this is, this is the place I wound up, it's economics where I've wound up. Um, this is somewhat serendipitous, but the training that I, uh, that I got and the kind of optimism, the kind of optimism I've always felt I'm just bringing to this job. And that's why I continue to do this work. My name is Anna Gifty Apoku Ajiman. I am currently a research scholar in economics at Harvard University. For me, I do this work because I have to. Doing this work is absolutely necessary in order for this profession to move forward in a way that is conducive to our world and to society in general we have to acknowledge that the voices that have been suppressed for literally a hundred years starting with sadie alexander and even before that absolutely have to be unearthed in this next iteration of talking about social justice and talking about different issues that affect marginalized communities. So for me, it's, it's a, a labor of love and I'm honored and humbled to be doing it. Uh, my name is Marshall Steinbaum. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah. 
I mean, I guess what motivates me on a day-to-day basis is generally getting angry and righteous about something. Yeah. Um, and there's plenty to get angry and righteous about when you look at uh, the sorts of economic debates that take place in public and even among economists. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a conceit among economists that, you know, policymakers don't understand economics. The public doesn't understand economics. If only all these stakeholders and, uh, and voters or whoever you want to talk about understood economics, then we would have the right policies that the, the world would operate efficiently. And, you know, that is just such a radical misinterpretation of, you know, the way policy actually gets made, the way public debate happens, and what economics is. I mean, it's economists who don't understand economics in that yes. schema. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, uh, you know, as an economist, that's not a, uh, uh, you know, state of affairs that I can tolerate. I'm Naomi Klein. My new book is On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. One of the, you know, just as a final question, it would be really great if you could take a moment and reflect on why you continue to do this work. Oh, dear. I mean, look, (laughs) I am motivated. I know. I mean, I don't know if I can be only high on it. It's a mixture of, of... of terror um, at what will happen if we don't do this work. I, you know, I have a seven-year-old. He is so in love with the natural world. Um, I never want to have to tell him that we allowed the places that he loves to collapse because we could have done something we didn't. So I, you know, I, I, I guess it's a combination of a fear of these worst outcomes, but also you know, I'm so inspired by this new generation of activists that are out there who are really not afraid of deep change. I think they didn't grow up with the same economic ideological indoctrination that I had, um, that my generation had. They've grown up in the rubble of the post-2008 financial crash, and they know that these systems are collapsing. They want to make connections. They are fiercely internationalist. You know, Greta Thunberg, when she spoke at the UN, she said, you stole my childhood. (laughs) And it was so heartbreaking to hear her say that. And I just feel like, geez, if these kids are giving up their childhoods, I mean, the least we can do is give up evenings and weekends and try to organize our coworkers and maybe our retirees can give up a few cruises and, you know, like they're giving up so much. So maybe it's not a high note, but I just feel like this is a moment where everybody has to step up in such a big way. And every, every half a degree of warming that we're able to ward off is a win. And every policy that we introduce that lights up the humanitarian parts of ourselves and, 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 and keeps us from turning on each other is going to help us hold on to our humanity in the hot future that is ahead. Um, I'm George Monbiot. I'm a journalist and campaigner, professional troublemaker, or so I'm told. I uh, write about a wide range of subjects, um, particularly environmental, political, economic subjects, really all the stuff which I find fascinating and I think is important. Why do you do what you do? Mm. Yes, well, that's a a very good question. I I couldn't live any other way. I, 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 a few years ago, I wrote down what I, I felt were the activities that made life meaningful and purposive. And they were to love and be loved. That, of course, is 
fundamental to a good life. They were to, to learn and to teach, to create and to try to do good. And you can do all that for entirely selfish reasons. Now, I don't know which of my reasons are selfish and which might be altruistic, but you know, all of those things make me feel like I've got a fulfilling life. So you know, it's a sort of selfish, hedonic reason for that. But it, it feels fulfilling because it happens to align with what I think is the sort of a, a map for creating a better world. And so if I were to stop doing what I do, I would be miserable because I would feel <laughs> that my life had lost much of its meaning and yeah. much of its purpose and and much of its delight. And and actually doing all those things fills my life with meaning every day. You know, because I have to basically roll in the shit of humanity. I mean, that's my job. You know, I write a column um, for The Guardian about all the terrible things that we're doing and what we might do about it. My life could be really miserable. You know, I have to confront yeah. a lot of things, Terrible things. that other people yeah. can turn their faces away from. But actually, you know, my life is quite wonderful. It's it, it's fulfilling and and rich and delightful because I'm engaged every day in these questions. Um, hi, this is Diane Rabbit, uh, and I am a historian of education. I've been writing about education for many, many years, and my uh, new book is coming out in January. Uh, it's called Slaying Goliath, and it's about the resistance to uh, efforts to privatize public education. Why are you still doing this? Why aren't you retired? First of all, I feel I have a lot to make up for. I had years of, of advocating for high-stakes testing and accountability, and you know, teachers and students have to be held accountable if their scores don't go up. And so I had this awakening about uh, a decade ago and said, you know, I'm wrong. So I have a lot to make up for. But I also just feel very strongly that as a society, we can't continue to go in the direction we're going in now without losing something that I've believed in all my life, which is, you know, I grew up revering America. And this present moment we live in today with a, a president who is openly racist, it's terrifying. It's like all of the things I grew up believing are turning out to be at risk. And I, I want to see the America that I've always believed in become good for everybody and not just for me, not just for my kids, not just for your kids, but for all the kids. If that sounds corny, maybe it's because yeah. it is. Not, not at all. I'm Anand Gerdardas. I'm a writer and I'm the author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. I think I write and write nonfiction and try to think about books as biopsies of a society at a moment in, in time. And I do that because I think in a, in a large and complex and affluent society such as ours, there are so many people who are so invested in stories about reality that sometimes reality is a casualty. And I think about writers as the people who are paid to tell the clear-eyed truth they're not paid to rep a particular company and make it look good or paid to uh, represent a particular ideology or party. And while it's important that a lot of people out there are doing those kinds of jobs, building things, repping things, advocating for things, I think it's important to keep around a certain number of village gossips who talk to people, who find out what people really think and try to tell the truth. I got especially lucky with this book 
that the truths in this book were not my private truths. They weren't things that only I thought. They were, in the way of the village gossip, the thing that a lot of people secretly thought but couldn't say because they got a job. Their health care depends on going back to that foundation tomorrow. And I think it's important to have some people in the society to whom people whisper about the truths they can't say um, because those people, those writers, can say it in their stead. I love it. That's a good answer. So on the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, uh, I'm super excited to get to talk to Oren Cass, who is sort of leading the fight to restore conservative economics. And that should be a really interesting discussion. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.